Hi, everybody. Welcome to Iroquois History and Legends. I'm Caleb. And I'm Andrew. And uh, what what episode is this, Andrew? We've made it to 23 now. Okay. Welcome to episode 23, the Tuscarora War. Now, if you're just joining us for this episode, I'd recommend, if you want to know about the Tuscarora, go back one episode to the episode Meet the Tuscarora, in that we talk about a lot of the conflicts that are going on uh, between the colonists and the natives of the Carolinas and what is leading up to this war that we're about to talk about. So to set things up where we're going today, uh, there's one main man that we need to talk about, and that's Christopher de Graffenried. He is a Swiss nobleman who is using the English crown to transport refugees to North Carolina to start a new colony called New Bern. Now we mentioned Christopher de Graffenried in our last episode, and how he writes that he was kind of ripped off on this land that he buys, because he says he ended up paying for it three times. One time to the Lord's proprietor, one time to John Lawson, and then another time to the Indians. Because when he got there, there was already a Tuscarora tribe living on the land where he intended to settle his Protestant refugees. So New Bern was founded right at the junction where the Trent and Noose Rivers joined together on a peninsula. And these Noose River Indians said, uh, we're already here, man. And de Graffin Reed gives them some trade goods, and they agree to resettle up the river. Now, you think things would be kind of tense there, and DeGraffin Reed, after he gets his colony up and going, they start building a little town square, and they start doling out land for plantations around the area. So he decides to get together with King Taylor, who's the leader of this town. That's right. He realizes that they're going to be neighbors, and you really don't want a powerful Indian nation living a few miles away from you unless you're on good terms with them. So he gets the idea, let's get together and do... A bonfire celebration. Uh, it wasn't really a treaty, but it was just a way to make relations good between the Indians and the new colonists. So King Taylor was okay with that. Not everybody on his council was. He had particularly at least one person who was very outspoken and said that we shouldn't be doing any dealings with these Europeans. But more to that in a second. De Graffenried had a friend, a guy named Louis Michel, and he was a European, German, Swiss kind of guy as How well. How come he sounds like a Frenchie then? Well, you know, in Switzerland, they've got French regions and German regions, and another one of his name was uh, Ludwig. He was with de Graffenried as they went to this uh, town gathering, and uh, Mr. Michel had a little too much to drink. It was common practice that a lot of the Native Americans enjoyed a, a good bit of rum, much to the detriment of their society, which again, we'll get to in the future. And he and de Graffenried are back there knocking back some cool ones, and he decides that maybe it would be funny if he went over to King Taylor and took his headdress off him and uh, threw it into the bonfire. It's always embarrassing when you do something stupid when you're drunk. It's especially bad when it may be one of the things that contribute to your nation going to war. Not only does Michelle do this, which would be a huge slap in the face, I can't even imagine how great an insult that is, but Michelle goes over to the one person on King Taylor's council that was very vocal against the English and begins assaulting him physically. We're talking punching him in the face, pinning him to the ground, and physically assaulting him in the midst of everybody. And de Graffenried has to literally go over and pull him off this guy and get him out of the, the central square. And de Graffenried, of course, is dealing with a bunch of angry people, and he begins to apologize profusely, saying, I am so sorry, he's drunk, uh, we are good friends, this is never, ever going to happen again. And it didn't, Caleb. 
Well, at least it didn't for several minutes. Or was it hours? It was probably a couple hours. So a couple hours later, the same guy, Michelle, comes back, finds this Indian who he was punching, and begins attacking him again. <laughs> so all of a sudden, they look over, and this this poor Indian is getting his face punched into the ground again by this guy. And again, DeGraff and Reed has to come over, pull him off. And again, I don't know how good of uh, excuses DeGraff and Reed came up with, but he again profusely apologized and said it'll never happen again. This time I mean it. This time it'll really never happen again. So I can just see DeGraff and get him out of here. But this is going to go on to show in a lot of the Native Americans' eyes that saw this that you can't trust the lip service from even the leaders amongst these colonists because they say this, it happens again, they just apologize again, and apologize again, and don't ever actually do anything about it. Now, King Taylor's town was not that big. It was probably between 20 and 30 families, so a few hundred people, not a large, huge settlement. But still, there's still offshoots of the Tuscarora, and they talk to all the other Tuscarora towns, and so a reputation has preceded de Graff and Reed already. Now, on top of things not going over very well because of this friend of de Graff and Reed pummeling one of the elders in the tribe, uh, there were a lot of other complaints and things that were causing conflict. A big one was they felt insulted because whenever they came into town to visit people or to trade, they would expect to be fed and to be treated like allies. Whenever white leaders would come into these Indian villages, if they traded with you, they looked at you as an ally and therefore to appoint family. And they were required in their culture to feed you Make sure you're comfortable, make sure you have a place to sleep, stay, whatever. But then when the Indians would come into the colonies, nobody wanted them around because they didn't understand that if you're an ally, you need to be treated as a family. So these Indians would come up to people and just expect to be fed whenever they were in town. And the colonists just found it appalling. Sometimes colonists would even have food laying around and the natives would just come over and start eating. And they, they just accused the Indians of stealing, but it was really uh, a total culture clash where they were not understanding each other. There were some other things, too, that the natives were doing that the settlers particularly didn't like. One was particularly with their livestock. Yeah, I think we briefly mentioned in the last episode, a lot of times certain types of livestock you would just kind of let roam free around your farm. Meanwhile, a Tuscarora warrior could be hunting through the woods and see your pig and shoot it and kill it. And then you see an Indian dragging your your pig away on his back to his village. You say, that's my pig. And he said, it's my it woods. Was, it was in the woods. <laughs> I can't tell your pig from a wild pig. And uh, another big one was we mentioned this many episodes back, but their a big form of their hunting was massive burning. This kind of annoyed the colonists when they look out one day and a hundred miles of forest is on fire <laughs> because that's the way they would hunt. It's the way they would clear land for their farm. But now all of a sudden, those trees are valuable income. Those are timber trees that they can saw. And now <laughs> I can just picture it. Another issue that they were having was colonists coming and settling on their land. And we mentioned in North Carolina at the time, there really wasn't much of a government set up. So basically everyone there kind of had free reign over everything. And there was nothing the government could really do about it. So the Indians are complaining to this governor of North Carolina saying, hey, your men are coming in here and just squatting on our land. And whenever we try and kick them off, they try and kill us or whatever. And we can't really fight back because then it looks like we're attacking them. So this is causing a lot of tension. And uh, also, 
I mean, we should probably mention this because this was an issue, but sexual assault of the Native American women. A lot of the people visiting the village got in their head that Indian women were really frisky. They, they, would, uh, they were very sexually open. They would have sex with anybody. And that kind of became a rumor uh, spread around town. So everybody would be going there and just expect to be able to have sex. That can create a big problem, especially when the women that they're trying to have sex with are the chief's wives, the chief's daughters, things like that. Well-respected clan mothers. And yeah, that, I want to bring that point up too. Uh, women are the matriarchs of this society. So it's not like that women are looked down upon and yeah, just have this girl go right ahead. These are the respected leaders of the town. I read somewhere, I could only find it one spot. So forgive me if, if I'm incorrect on this, but I read that actually the fact that they would sleep with people, actually not quite the case. It was actually the all of these men were coming to the village and expecting to, so they actually had like official unmarried women that were allowed to. That way, when the traders and things would come in, they wouldn't get angry and try to disrespect a married woman. They would have young unmarried women that could do it. And they basically created this group of people to do it just to avoid offending anybody. But it kind of created this illusion that all the Native American women were like that. And also the illusion that all colonial men are only out for one thing. It's, it's a very interesting side note, Caleb, but did you know that in North American culture, rape is almost unheard of? Like, it did not happen. In Native American culture? In, in especially Iroquoian culture. It yeah. did not happen. Not until many years later, up until late 17th, 18th centuries with European influence, but it really did not happen because men were told to respect women so much. It was virtually unheard of. Now, time after time, they would send complaints to the government and the government leaders. And just like de Graffenried, they just kind of played lip service. And they said, okay, we'll, we'll make sure that doesn't happen again. But they never really did much about it. In all honesty, there probably wasn't much they could do about it because the government just didn't have the power that they probably wanted to lead on that they had over the people. In the North Carolina government's defense, they did officially put petitions and things like that out and make it illegal to do certain things, make it illegal to cheat the Indians and don't rape the women and things like that. But it just didn't really have any practical difference on the day-to-day -day lives for anybody. Unless you're sending a sheriff out with every single settler to conduct official business. And then, is that really going to solve anything? The sheriff's probably just going to try and get it on the action too. <laughs> so let's transition back and talk about Christopher de Graffenried. He's getting his town up and going, and his nemesis slash business partner slash guy that sold him the bill of goods to get over here, John Lawson, comes to him one day and says, I'd like you to go upriver with me. That's right. We can kind of see through what John Lawson was doing as far as his business ventures at the time. We're pretty sure that he was trying to map a road to Virginia. You know, uh something that would be very useful for a new and upcoming colony. If we could create a straight road to Virginia, it would help trade, it would help the colony start to grow. There's several problems with that, though. Uh, mainly, that wasn't their land that they were trying to build the road on. And secondly, once you build a road, settlements are going to pop up along that road. So before they can build a road, though, they have to map out a way to do it. So that's why John Lawson comes to de Graffenried and he says, let's go on a little backpacking trip. Let's go on a canoe trip. Grab your stuff and let's head up the river and let's uh, 
let's go to pick some wild grapes, is what he says. And this was basically, this goes to show me that they knew they shouldn't be doing it. And they just thought, well, we'll just say we're going out for a nice summer stroll. Yeah, we're going to we're gonna try and crossbreed these Native American grapes with our uh, old line European grapes. And that'll be our excuse. So Lawson, DeGraff, and Reed, and they each bring an African slave along with them, as well as two Indian guides and two horses. And apparently one of the horses sits in the canoe. Yeah, I was wondering. They brought a horse, and they're in like this little boat going up the river. <laughs> apparently one horse was on the side of the side of the river, and the other one stood up in it. Anyway, they start heading up the Noose River, and they get a good ways up, and there is, we mentioned in our previous episode about King Hancock, right, Caleb? And he has a town along the Noose River called Hancock's Town. I believe it's also known as Kachechnia. Instead of just stopping in and saying hi, as they're literally passing within yards of it, they just keep going on up the river. And eventually, uh, the lead Indian scout that they brought along with them gets intercepted by some of these people from Kichechna, and they ask him, Hey, man, um, why are you riding a horse? And what are you doing here? <laughs> and word gets back to him, and he says, Well, I'm here with John Lawson, and we're just up uh, checking out the river. Now, what did we say John Lawson does? What's his job? He is the land surveyor for North Carolina. He's the land surveyor, that's right. And... The Indians have started to realize that whenever a land surveyor is seen walking around and measuring things and measuring distances and checking things out, very shortly after that, a land grab comes and people try taking your land or try to force you off their land. So he starts to become kind of a blacklisted guy in all of these Native American towns. And now all of a sudden they hear that he's on the river sneaking by without stopping in to pay a visit even and just looking around and it just looks suspicious and it's starting to make everybody angry so um they send the scout back and inform him to please tell john lawson to turn around and go back home he and de get the message and they decide yeah well we'll go back but let's head a little bit further up the river first i think christopher de actually wrote in his diary that they thought we'll go i think it was four or five miles further because they knew a good they heard of a good spot that they could camp for the night and then they'd start early in the morning and head back well when they get to this great spot this uh natural spring to camp they get there and out of the bushes and across the river come 60 tuscarora warriors from kichechnia and they step out and they look at lawson and degrathenry now we forgot to mention but it was the style at the time that these high and uppity people would wear the wigs. We mentioned Denonville back in New York when he invaded Seneca Land was wearing his periwig. Well, Lawson and de Graffenried were wearing their wigs too. And the Indians knew who Lawson was, but they didn't know who this guy was with them. But looking at his stature, he's a Swiss nobleman wearing a very fancy wig. They thought that it was Governor Hyde, the big head honcho of the whole colony of North Carolina. The soldiers are instructed by King Hancock to make sure that they turn around and go home. But they decide, we've got the governor of North Carolina. This could be a very, very useful pawn. And so they end up taking Lawson and the slaves and their guides all the way back to Kachechnia, make them run all night, and they eventually get to town at three in the morning. Once they arrive, they find that King Hancock is already waiting for them, 
and he has a council assembled. And they begin to inquire as to what their purpose was for coming up the river, why they didn't ask for permission to travel up his river, and why they hadn't even stopped by to pay him a visit. And de Graffenreid, he, uh, he responds kind of like what we said. He, he says it was a beautiful sunny day, so I thought that we would just get in the canoe and go and look for some wild grapes and just, you know, just relax in the sun. We're very sorry. We didn't mean to offend you. Let me give you a gift and just send us on our way. At the same time, King Hancock was kind of upset at his young warriors because he didn't want to even risk kidnapping these guys because he realized that it could be problems down the road. He really just wanted his warriors to send them back. But now he's realizing that these young men are kind of edging him on, forcing his hand. Yeah, by bringing the graffiti, the young warriors in a way were kind of challenging their chief to make a decision in front of the whole village. So he's caught in between this rock and his hard place. If he lets them go, he's going to look weak in front of the young men and the rest of the village. And if he keeps them or punishes them, he has the potential to start a war and cut off trade to his tribe. And just it could have a whole bunch of negative consequences. So King Hancock decides that he needs to get some advice. This is going to affect all of the Tuscarora in the area. And so he sends runners in the middle of the night out to the other towns asking for representatives to come back to help him in this decision-making process. Because the English called him a king, but Tuscarora society is very much like Iroquois society. They need to build consensus and they need to make sure that all the other partners in their network are in agreement on what they should do. After the night progresses, some other chiefs come. They ask the same questions to them all again. And they've, they come to a consensus that they're going to let the men go. But as they've made this agreement, a new group of men show up. And they're led by this guy named Corey Tom. Corey Tom did not much care for the English. In fact, it's pretty much stated that he hated the English. Corey Tom comes in and with his little entourage from Corey Town, which was another smaller Tuscarora-like town down the river. And he begins to ask them, you know, why did you come? What, what's your reasoning? What's, what's your sneaky purpose? Corey Tom's just one guy. His word doesn't have much weight at this point. And the council again decides that they're going to let de Graffenried and Lawson and their slaves go. But the next day, they need to get their stuff together and they spend some time packing up. And that leaves Corey Tom and John Lawson standing around, and they kind of get into a heated argument, Caleb. Yeah, John Lawson looks at Corey Tom, and now that he knows that he's going to be sent back safe and sound, he tells Corey Tom, I'm not going to forget this, and I'm going to come back here, and I'm going to get my revenge for you guys holding me here. In the meantime, DeGraffenry is thinking to himself, please shut up! We've been told we're being let go twice, and now you've got to go and say that? The fact that you know, he actually heard John Lawson threaten him, and not only not only threaten him, but he threatened to bring back troops to attack him. Corey Tom, maybe he just knew how to push the buttons, but this was John Lawson's doom. So they reassembled the council. What Lawson didn't realize was the only reason that they were being let go is because Hancock, in the background, is telling all the people that no harm would come to them for kidnapping them if we just let them go. But now all of a sudden Lawson is there swearing revenge in front of everybody. So now this is swaying the majority of his town into thinking, wait a minute, if we're going to be attacked anyway, war is probably the best option and we should fight first. 
everybody is here now, all these different people from the towns, and they get a council together again. And pretty soon thereafter, they decide that these guys got to die. Yep, uh, all four of them. Lawson, de Graffenried, and their two slaves, all sentenced to execution. Now, once they're sentenced, de Graffenried basically sees that this is the end. He tells Lawson, he tells his slaves, pray, this is the end for us. You know, we're most likely going to be executed in the morning. And as they're walking them all out to the council fire again, to where they're going to be tortured and executed, de Graffenried is sad and praying. And he looks into the crowd and he sees an Indian there dressed as an Englishman. Now, de Gravenry, he didn't speak the language, and this kind of hindered him in some ways because he couldn't really uh, explain anything to anybody unless it was through an interpreter, and then you don't know what they're interpreting. But he sees this Indian there dressed as an Englishman, and he, he, yells, he yells to him, come here, I'll give you anything you want. And the guy comes over, and he says, please interpret for me and just let me explain myself before this happens. I'll give you anything you want. And the guy says, okay. He's no good to me dead. <laughs> he gets an audience with the uh, elders again for like the fourth time. And he kind of takes the Jesus Christ approach to this. This is what I picture. He says to them, what am I being executed for? And then they all think, uh, you're being uh, executed for being on the river uh, without permission. And he says, were we not friends? Were we not trading partners? Can't I come into your land as a friend? And then they all said, mm, well, we're mad about our chief being insulted. And he says, I knew I did nothing with that. And if anything, I tried to stop that. And then they all think, and uh, they say, well, uh, Lawson says that uh, you're going to come back and do revenge on all of us. And he says, I never said that. That's Lawson that said that. I am blameless in all this, and if you guys kill me, you are killing an innocent man, and shame on you, because I've been nothing but a friend of you. And this kind of tugs on their heartstrings, and they kind of realize, wait a minute, technically, he didn't do anything to us. So now, all of a sudden, they're going to send runners out again. Yep, and so they send runners out to King Tom Blount. Now, he is a Tuscarora chief that is out on the northern band of the Tuscarora. The Tuscarora mainly at this time fell into three tribes. There was a northern, a middle, and a southern. Right now down here is the southern part. Tom Blount's all the way up further, but he's a very well-respected man and he hasn't made it. And so they send a runner out asking King Tom Blount's advice. They wait for it. A messenger comes back. Chief Tom Blount does not come back, but he says pretty much de Graffenried shouldn't be punished. Let him go, but whatever you want to do to Lawson, do to Lawson. Next thing you know, they decide that de Graffenried will not be executed, but they're not going to let him go right now because they've got other plans that the councils and the young men have decided. There's three different versions what happened to Lawson. De Graffenried doesn't really know. Uh, one version is they just slit his throat from ear to ear, and he's dead. Another version is that they hang him, and a third version is that they take very fine little shaved sticks and poke it under all his skin and then light it on fire. Ugh, that sounds horrible. Either way, John Lawson ends up being executed along with his slave. That's right. Uh, as far as the slaves, Christopher de Graffin's slave got to live. John Lawson's slave was also executed. Yes. While this is happening, though, they realize that, all right, they're not killing 
to graph and read, but executing Lawson is going to have serious ramifications and dire consequences. And so since they've now done this, war is probably going to happen anyway. And so this guy, Corey Tom, decides that he's going to start riling people up and pushing them for a preemptive strike against these English colonists. Now, you mentioned this guy, Corey Tom, again, Andrew. Who is this random guy of the Cory Indians that shows up and has the authority to start uh, revving people up for war and pre-sentencing the Grafenried and Lawson to death? Who is this guy? And that's where the mystery really comes in, Caleb, because as for records, we don't have any real concrete stuff of where he is. He kind of just shows up and then he kind of just disappears from the record. We don't find out whatever happens to him and we don't find out where he came from. There's a conspiracy theory that Corey Tom may have been a Seneca or Susquehannock person ethnically. There is documented instances of a situation in Pennsylvania where this guy named Squire Tom came through and he ended up murdering a colonial family and framing some other Indians for it. And that started a war where those other Indians ended up appealing to the Five Nations to come be absorbed by them to get out of this war. Then, a few years later, down in Virginia, a guy named Long Tom shows up, and the same thing happens. And these people end up trying to ally with the Iroquois. Now, this is either an amazing coincidence, or it's possible that Corey Tom... Long Tom. Long Tom. <laughs> and Squire Tom. And Squire Tom are all the same person. Yep. There's no proof one way or the other. It's all circumstantial evidence. But it really is amazing that in all three circumstances, you have this guy named Tom, that there's no proof of what what Indians he actually belongs to. He kind of just shows up, causes these situations which lead to a war, which leads to a nation moving back to the five nations. So I can kind of see it as... Like this coach giving a pep rally before a football game. He's like, what are we going to do? We're going to attack these English scum. How are we going to do it? We're going to tomahawk them. <laughs> and he can just playing to the emotions of the young people. And King Hancock and the older people, who are the wiser, more sensible people that have seen what happens on earth when you end up going to war, they're trying to push back against it, but they realize that the tide has turned. And Tuscarora, like other Iroquois people, they need to build consensus, so you either need to get with the program and endorse it, or you need to just recuse yourself and go with the majority and not cause any division. And that's what they decide to do. They decide that war is what they're going to vote for. That being said, not all the Tuscarora are in agreement. This is mainly the southern Tuscarora, mainly Kachechnia. We're going to see that a lot of the northern Tuscarora at least officially, are going to play no part in the war. Most likely, a lot of their young people did participate, but at least as far as the chiefs and the clan mothers and things like that, they played no official role in attacking the Carolinas. And you may think to yourself, why not? They're just as at risk for colonial encroachment as anybody else. The northern and middle sections of the Tuscarora mainly relied more on trade. And they were doing quite well because they had a good relationship with Virginia and the Carolinas because they're kind of nestled right between them being in the north northern part of North Carolina. And they had a lot of really close friendships with the chiefs and uh, the leaders in Virginia and North Carolina. Mm -hmm. Chief Tom Blount may be named after an actual Englishman named Tom Blount. 
And also settlers weren't really encroaching on their land in the northern part. You think usually of Americans pushing west, but with Carolina it was mainly they were pushing south into these more tributary river areas. And that's mainly where the slave traders from South Carolina were coming up and going too. So they were much more insulated and so it really didn't affect them as much. That being said, there were other southern Indians that weren't Tuscarora that decided to go along with it. So after this rousing speech, Corey Tom and his men assemble a force and they decide to start doing some reconnaissance. We mentioned before that it was not uncommon for Indian scouts to just uh, show up in town looking for things to trade, looking for food. And so they did the normal thing. They went into towns, looked around, got the lay of the land, saw how many people were there, who what households had a lot of people around, where their weapons were stored. A lot of these people were even on first-name basis with some of the Indians, and it's recorded that they even looked at them like they were friends or family. Oh, here comes... Uh, here comes Billy. Here comes Billy down the road. Uh, hey, Billy, you want to give me a hand? I'll pay you two buck skins if you come over here and help me till my garden. Things like that. They were recorded that they would come in a lot of times and do side jobs for trade goods. So after regrouping at the edge of the woods, they make a plan. More than 500 people from these different Indian tribes get together, and they've all got different assignments, Caleb. The Cori are supposed to strike at New Bern, the Swiss settlement, and other different plantations on the Trent River. The Noose River Indians, that's King Taylor's town, and the Palamico and Wetoks are going to strike White Oak River. And then the Machapungas, great name. Their main task is to hit Bath, which is the main town up north. The Bear River Indians, they're down along the coast. They're to hit north of the Noose River. So all these warriors sweep down in right at sunup on September 22nd. They take them totally by surprise. They just rush in. Anybody that's out in the field working on their garden or land is instantly tomahawked or shot with either a bow and arrow or a rifle musket. They break into different farmhouses and they are totally indiscriminate. They kill men, women, children, slaves. It doesn't matter. Anybody they can get their hands on. Many of these attacks, Caleb, are very gruesome, uh, very bloody, and honestly, we don't even feel like going into detail too much. We're kind of stuck between a rock and a hard place because we don't want to paint the picture of how horrible these Indians were, but at the same time, we don't want to just pretend that it didn't happen. Let's just all accept that war is a horrible thing. You ever hear the saying, war is hell? This was. It is. With the Iroquois, when you're their friend, you're their friend. And when it's war, it's total war. Uh, people ended up, you know, whole families would end up being slaughtered or just a couple members would end up being able to get in a canoe and flee out into the river. Or other people that had bigger, larger homes were able to barricade themselves inside. Now, we mentioned that taking slaves and taking captives was very popular at this point and profitable. But we see from this attack, they didn't take as many as they could. There was a lot of women, a lot of children killed. And that just goes to show how fed up they were with all of these injustices that were going on in their society against them and how they just continued to ask the government to step in and nothing happened. This shows that they really were mad about it because if they just wanted to make a point and be done with it, they would go in, they'd kill some men, they'd take some refugees back, wait for them to pay a ransom and send them back and be done with it. But they were mad. New Bern took the brunt of it, mainly. It was a new town, just less than a year old. They really had no defenses. 
These were the poor German Swiss and Germans that already lost half their population coming over on the boat, then were robbed as soon as they got here, and then were left starving and died of sickness on land. Now they finally got their settlement up and running, and now this happens. New Bern at the time was probably only between 250 and 350 people. So they took the brunt of it, but they also sacked areas outside of Bath. And so this is a this is not a local thing. This is a wide-ranging, several-county assault, all coordinated to happen at the same time. Yeah, by coordinating it to all be at sunup, they can avoid anybody calling for help. It's hard for the next town over to send you help if they're getting hit at the same time. They were so overwhelmed that pretty much the Tuscarora and these other smaller nations were able to run loose for several days. People that survived had to stay holed up where they were because if they ventured outside, it was almost assured that there would be somebody hiding in the grass somewhere to strike them. And so this is spread out over several days. The carnage continues. And it wasn't just the settlers. Almost immediately, the North Carolina government calls up for the militia But the militia are all holding up in the forts and in the fortified houses because they don't want to go out and get killed if there's an Indian with a musket hiding in the tall grass. Yeah, the term fog of war would apply surely to this situation because they really have no idea how many there are, where they're coming from, how well armed they are. They have no idea if all of the Native Americans in the whole area have all allied against them and have them completely surrounded. They have no way of communicating with the North Carolina, South Carolina government, so they are all just going to sit tight and basically pray for a savior at this point. So over the next few days, uh, hundreds of farms are destroyed. They burn the crops. They burn the houses. Even a courthouse is burned. Uh, They end up killing at least 140 men, women, and children. And there were some captives taken, Caleb, uh, about 40, mainly women and young children. Once things finally calm down, North Carolina is just a smoldering mess. The people are, I guess the term would be, totally terrorized. They're they're dealing with post-traumatic stress disorder. Many of them have seen their families massacred in front of themselves. The young men are just too terrified to even form a militia and go out and try and attack these Indian towns because they're worried that they're going to end up getting killed. Meanwhile, uh, if you were lucky enough to have a more fortified house, all of a sudden you have children orphaned children showing up at your house and refugees, single women that have had their sons and husbands killed and they're pouring into your house and everybody's just in tears and in mourning and shell-shocked. And it shuts the entire government down for a long time. Now, right away, North Carolina sends word to Virginia and South Carolina and asks for assistance. Hey, we're in some big trouble. Send us army. Send us militia, send us resources, do whatever you can. Virginia, right off the bat, Virginia is fairly well established at the time, and their governor says, okay, prepare the army, get all the food going. And he writes back and says, okay, they're on their way. You're just going to have to pay us back when you get a chance. North Carolina goes, whoa, 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 whoa. Let's not, let's not be too hasty here. We don't have any money. And Virginia says, it's okay, we'll let you pay back. We're not going to pay it back. You guys should be helping us because we're your your sister colony. And then Virginia, the Virginia government says, why don't you hold off on that army for a little bit until we figure this out. This basically takes Virginia out of the war right off the bat because 
North Carolina can't pay them to send their men. And that's really unfortunate because the colony in Virginia is actually much closer to them in North Carolina than the reinforcements from South Carolina are. You throw this into the mix, remember, Kerry's Rebellion has just taken place earlier this year, and so you have a government that's very divided, especially since the main governing body is primarily held by Quakers. And what are Quakers known for, Caleb, besides oatmeal? Nat war. They, according to their religion, are pacifists by nature. They believe in not getting involved in armed conflicts. They believe in treating all men and women equally. So the Quakers, we're going to find out, are take a lot of ideas from the Six Nations, especially about women's equality and abolition of slavery. But that's for another time. These Quakers also lived in the far north of North Carolina, and this was the area that was spared from the raids and massacre. You have these Quakers saying, if you guys hadn't been mean to these natives, this wouldn't have happened. And the best thing for us to do is just try and get peace overtures and not do anything else. But meanwhile, they've got no skin in the game. They haven't been attacked. They haven't had their farms burned. They see no reason to raise any taxes to support a militia or to hire an army from Virginia. So that leaves South Carolina. And South Carolina can't really uh, be passive because technically they are the same colony. So they're both run by the Lord's proprietor. They both technically have the same overseeing governor. So this basically forces them to do something about this. So South Carolina appoints this guy named John Barnwell. He's an Irishman that had immigrated over at the turn of the century. He was uh, very good friends with a group of Indians called the Yamasee. And he also had relations with other people. So this is a couple months later. In November 1711, Barnwell assembles about 700 men, 35 South Carolina white people to join as officers, and the rest are all Indian allies. The main contingent was the Yamasee, but they also had the Appalachians, the Chitabas, the Santees, the Wateries, the Cape Fear Indians, and several others. Caleb, it would not be a great story without Barnwell having a trusted lieutenant. It seems to be a theme in our show, and so this is no different. Barnwell has a trusted lieutenant named Lieutenant Gale. Uh, lieutenant Gale's job was to take a small contingent of men and to sail along the Carolina coast and get supplies up in North Carolina and then sail up the Noose River and meet his men who are going to march by land through the wilderness of South Carolina into North Carolina, and they're going to meet up at the river with their forces and new supplies and take out these Tuscarora. Now, Barnwell's men are traveling very light. They don't have a lot of supplies. This is kind of a, a speed game. They're going to walk there, and they figure at the same time, Gale can sail up and sail back and meet them around the same time. Problem is, these stinking French pirates. I wonder if it's the same group that caught, that caught the, the refugees the year, before. the year before. They're waiting out there on the shore again, and after he gets the supplies and he's sailing down to meet Barnwell, Lieutenant Gale's ship gets taken over by French pirates. The worst part of it is not only do they take all the supplies, but they take Lieutenant Gale and they hold him at their little pirate hideaway den, and they don't even let him send any word to Barnwell. So Barnwell is just sitting there waiting. Where's Lieutenant Gale's supplies? And he won't even find out till after the war what happened to him. He's just disappeared. So he's in prison for four months, has no way to get things out. 
So Barnwell finally sets out marching in December. Later, on January 28th, 1712, he makes it to the Neuse River. He's sending out scouts. Where's Lieutenant Gale? Where's Lieutenant Gale? Can't find anyone. As they've marched along, many of the Indians have marched with them, and they say, eh, there's not really anything going on. It's cold. Yeah, we're not into it. And so many of them just leave. Yeah, as many as 200 people out of his 700 are gone, and they haven't even fought anybody yet. Yep, so they're down to 528 by the time he's at the Neuse River. The following day on January 29th, he decides to attack the village of Torjunta, which is just beyond King Hancock's town a little ways. The problem was, unlike Iroquois towns that we've talked about before, Caleb, we mentioned in all these different invasions that the French have come down, the Iroquois towns were very tightly compact, right? Tightly compact and also much larger, so you could fit over a hundred people in one longhouse at some times. The Tuscarora lived a little differently. They lived in a warmer climate and they lived in almost like Native American plantations where they would have a couple small houses and then large fields and then a few more houses and then more large fields, a couple hundred acres. So everything was very spread out and there wasn't a big main village. Yeah, they would have a town center where they would have councils and different gatherings and would have a few buildings clustered together. There was no real city to strike per se. The Tuscarora, however, had been expecting that eventually English troops would show up and so they began constructing these forts. Up to nine forts they were working on at the time and think of this much more like what the Iroquois up north had these palisaded castles with buildings inside to stay and store food and stuff, but also to have rings around them. Uh, The problem was the troops had gotten there pretty quick, and so many of these forts were not completed yet. The following day, Barnwell attacks a large, incomplete castle near Torjunta. It was only defended by some old men and a group of women. It was pretty easy for Barnwell to get in because the walls weren't totally done yet. But still, they fought tooth and nail. And when it's just old men and women, you would think that it wouldn't be too hard, but it took them over 30 minutes, and they fought pretty much to the death. Barnwell was severely disappointed because uh, he was saddened that the women were killed because he thought that they could be much more valuable taken back as slaves. And anybody that did live, he's noted being upset because all of his Indian warriors took them and ran off with them back home to sell them. And uh, he and his men got one slave. Barnwell's soldiers, they really weren't being paid much. Uh, You know, we mentioned that they had over 30 officers there overseeing everything. That They didn't take much money because there wasn't money to give. So they planned on taking slaves to subsidize this war. In fact, it was a large incentive that South Carolina was sending this army up because they thought that they could recoup the funds from the army with all the hundreds and perhaps even thousands of slaves they could be bringing back. Mm -hmm. But this starts to become a financial burden on them because not only are they not making money, but they're going to start losing money. We see later in some uh, legal documents that Barnwell actually lost about a thousand pounds sterling of his own money funding this campaign. And that's just an astronomical amount. We don't have to tell you. You could buy ships for that kind of money. All in all, in this battle in Terhunta, there were um, six of Barnwell's men killed and 28 wounded, all of them Indians, but several of them very prominent chiefs. Uh, They spend the next couple days plundering and raiding all these abandoned homes. The Tuscarora had sent all the women and children out into the wilderness to hide in the swamps where they knew the armies couldn't find them. Barnwell's men were pretty much looking for anything they could find of value, and especially cornmeal. 
because they were getting pretty hungry because the supplies had never come and they were trying to live off the land. The following day, they get hit. Uh, There's a counterattack. They were able to repulse the attack, and they only suffered two people being wounded, and they killed nine Tuscarora warriors and ended up capturing two men. Immediately after Barnwell saw them, he ordered them to be burned alive. This is why we say that the English are no better than the Tuscarora, because their penchant for torture was definitely there. They had different methods, but the goal was to inflict pain and kill. And they did it to the fullest. More and more people start leaving. As they've got captives and loot, these Indians think, eh, this is what we came for. We're out of here. That's how their wars worked. They didn't look at war like the goal was to wipe out the people you're attacking. It's you fight until you have enough to go home with something to show that you were successful. And that was it. So as soon as you have enough slaves or enough goods, it's a successful campaign. Time to go home. This leaves Barnwell and his South Carolina men just with Barnwell's close friends, the Yamasee, probably about 200 people. He says, all right, they continue raiding and burning house after house. They count that they burn 375 homes. They are able to capture some more prisoners, and this time they decide, well, maybe we should interrogate them instead of, you know, torturing and burning them to death right away. And they ask this one guy, how many warriors are there that we can expect? And he said, there's 1,500 of them. Which is probably a fairly accurate number based on the sizes of the villages and how many men they could put into the field. This seems like a doable number. But he also gives them this little bit of information that there's two Seneca diplomats with the army giving them advice. Barnwell sends out scouts trying to find out where these 1,500 Tuscarora warriors are. They can't find them anywhere, but it turns out that they're actually up north with Chief Tom Blount's people taking refuge. Uh, We mentioned before that Tom Blount is part of the northern Tuscarora tribe. They're technically neutral with the English, but that doesn't mean that their family and friends from the other Tuscarora clans and nations aren't going to turn them away. You remember Indian hospitality? Somebody shows up. You give them lodging, you give them food. No different here. They're not going to turn them away. So Barnwell is thinking that he's doing a pretty good job, but he hasn't actually struck a fatal blow to the Tuscarora. Yeah, they burn their houses, but they can rebuild their houses. Yeah, Andrew, if they have 1,500 warriors and a population of maybe 10,000 people between all of these different nations, tribes, killing 10, 15 old men and women and eight warriors one day, really isn't going to be a deciding factor on who wins the war. So on February 4th, Barnwell decides to move towards Bath, and he's going to get resupplied there, and then he figures he'll go back out and raid the abandoned farms and homes. Once in Bath, Barnwell is praised. Everybody turns out and is so happy that this army has come to rescue them, and after regrouping, he wants to immediately set out and attack Hancock's town. Immediately doesn't exactly happen. On February 27th, which so we're looking at a few weeks later, Barnwell departs for Kichechdia, Hancock's town. He has about 27 South Carolina men, 68 North Carolina men. That's all they could get was 68 men in the militia defending their own towns. And as well as now they're down to 148 Indians, mostly the Yamasee. After a five-day march, they make it to Kichechdia. Okay, so... They start with over 700 men. Before the battles even start, they're down to about 530. And now, after these battles, we're down to about 200, 230 men. Yep, only 68 North Carolina reinforcements. So they come to Kachachnia, but they find it totally abandoned. To complicate matters, this is February. And down south, this is the beginning of spring. 
And so you have any snow and rain that's come down, it's ended up flooding all these creeks and marshes. All these waterways are totally overflowing their banks. So Barnwell has to actually build rafts to get the people across the rivers to get to the other side to try and attack these other Tuscarora forts. Meanwhile, they're being harassed by different snipers and people trying to attack them as they cross. Finally, on March 5th, they come across a Tuscarora fort. But this fort is not like any fort they've ever seen an Indian build before, Caleb. That's right, Andrew. They come to this fort and they think that they're looking at a European castle all of a sudden. They're used to fighting these fortified, palisaded Iroquois towns, but this fort is built on a high hill with a moat dug around it, and it's also got points that come out so that the bastions, you can guard other sections of your wall. It's got spiked sticks sticking out and pointing towards you so you can't charge it without getting impaled with a large wooden wall all the way around it with firing holes for people to shoot bows and arrows out. And then even with a second story bastion where people can shoot down on you on top of that. And they had loopholes for a lower uh, shot and loopholes on the second story for a higher shot. Now, to describe a bastion, uh, if you've never seen a fort before, that's where the fort kind of comes out as like a three-sided triangle or sometimes in a star shape. And that means if you want to assault the gate, you have three walls surrounding you so that people can fire down on you from both sides in a crossfire and directly ahead. So if you try and attack the gate, you're not going to be able to get in. Now, how the heck did the Indians build a fort like this? Uh, they had help from Harry. Harry? Yeah, Harry. He was, let's put it this way, he was an African slave that had run away and ended up joining the Tuscarora. There's a second rumor that he may have even been de Graffenreid's slave. If you remember, Lawson's slave was executed, but we don't really hear anything about what happened to the Graffenreid's slave other than he lived. So it's possible that this could have been the same person. Either way, Harry somehow knew how European forts worked. He either was a slave at some point that actually built these, or it's possible that sometime in the past he could have been a slave assistant to a colonel, a general, and so he had access to learning through books and through experience with a general how these forts are built. So the Tuscarora jump at the chance when they find out that this guy knows how to build forts, so they obviously put him in charge of building this thing. So Barnwell is just taken aback, and he has no idea who's helping with this, and so he decides he's going to divide his forces. He takes 100 men, and they go to the backside of the fort. Meanwhile, there's a guy who's in charge of the North Carolina militia, and his name is William Bryce, and they're going to set up in front of the fort. They begin making these things called fascines, which is picture like a huge bundle of sticks. They wound them really tight together, and they used them as a shield. Uh, this is pretty much, with all these sticks interwoven together and as huge layers, uh, they pretty much viewed them as being bulletproof. And uh, the general plan was these could be their bulletproof shields, but then, like I mentioned, they have almost a moat trench dug around this. They would use these as shields until they got to a moat, and then they could throw these in, fill the ditch up, that way the rest of the army could march up behind them quickly. Sounds like a great plan. And Barnwell says, all right, we're going to attack in the morning. Problem is, Bryce's men didn't coordinate or didn't listen to the signals, and they attacked first in the morning, not waiting for Barnwell's troops to attack at the same time. And they're holding these bundles of sticks as they're running <laughs> up to the fort. And when they get about 10 meters from the wall, they get lit up 
by a volley of musket fire. So all these people up on the wall start shooting down at them. And the great thing is, the shields work. The problem is, I can understand this. You're holding these shields, and you feel the bullets hitting it as you're running up. And they totally panic. They drop the shield and begin running the other way. At which point, get get shot shot in the back. When if they'd just stayed behind the shields, they would have been fine. Yeah, um, they ended up picking them up afterwards, and they found that some of them had up to 100 different rounds in the shields. Mm -hmm. Wow. Yeah, so, I mean, just picture it. There's a whole line of people with muskets up on the wall, and they're firing at you point blank. You're going to get lit up. Barnwell is, well, he's an Irishman, so I can see how he's got that temper about him. But he starts running over to them, and he's swinging his machete at them, angrily cursing them to get back to their positions. And he's even taking swipes at some of them, cutting them to try and get them back. We're going to see from this point on, Barnwell is going to have a long hatred of North Carolina men, militiamen in particular. Throughout his letters that he writes his friends and family for the rest of his life, he, every time he gets a chance, he talks about what cowards the North Carolinians are. After him trying to rally his troops didn't work, Barnwell orders a withdrawal from the fort. In all the casualties are, he ends up with four people killed and 21 wounded. Which, if he's only got 240 men... That's a pretty huge number, because, I mean, yeah, you think only four killed, but what does wounded mean? Well, that means they've either got a cut, or a gash, or they've got some open wound, or worse, they've been actually shot and have something embedded inside them. On top of that, the North Carolina militia are terrified, they just retreated... And more Indians are leaving every morning. And the Yamasee pretty much tell him, we're not going to directly attack a fort. We came here to help you, but not end up as cannon fodder. So he's got both his Indian allies and the North Carolina militia refusing to attack. He floats an idea of maybe doing a night attack. They shoot that down. And so he decides to make a small fortified position by the creek where the Tuscarora need to come and get water. And he's thinking, okay, we'll just camp a little bit away. When they need to come down to the creek to get water, then we can shoot at them. The Tuscarora see what they're trying to do, and they get wise to it. It turns out that inside this fort, they have some women and children captives that they've taken from these different settlements. And they have them go down with an escort to the river to get water, thereby forcing Barnwell to not be able to shoot at them because he'd be shooting his own people. Then they start to hear screaming. Yeah, this is when the Tuscarora start to play the old psychological warfare. They start to torture some of the women and the children, and Barnwell and the men can hear the screams from inside the fort. And the Tuscarora yell out, If you want it to stop, get out of here, basically. So Barnwell, he puts up a white flag and he says, Let's talk. So he meets with a representative at the fort, and uh, they said, get out of here, or we're going to kill all the prisoners. And they say that if you do attack the fort, and if you manage to get inside, we're going to fight to the last man, and all these prisoners are going to die anyway. So what's the point? Barnwell, he may be a jerk, but he's not stupid. He realizes he doesn't have enough men to assault these walls. To add complications to it, he does a quick inventory, and he finds out that they've only got enough musket balls for about four rounds each for each person. So you can imagine that's going to go pretty quick. So Barnwell says that he'll leave if they release all of the 12 captives that are inside the fort. And he wants canoes that are going to take them and his wounded men and all the POWs 
downstream to New Bern. And he wants to make sure that they're going to send messengers out to all the Indians lurking, that they're under a white flag of truce and they're not going to shoot us up once we start to leave. Then he says, in 10 days, uh, we're going to hold a peace conference and we would like you to bring the other 22 captives that are being held in the other towns to the peace conference and we'll work out our difficulties. Now, this brings up a really interesting part in the story because Barnwell is basically trying to make a peace treaty with them at this point. He's he's basically has no choice but to do it because he doesn't have enough men or supplies. But previous to his campaign, he was given very strict orders by the governor and the other leadership in the colony that they did not want peace. They wanted this to be a total war campaign where they could wipe the Tuscarora out and these other Indians out. And by doing so, this would open up all of the land for expansion. But he just made a peace treaty with them without any backing from any colonial government. To the Tuscarora's credit, they agree to all the terms. They give them canoes, they let them go down the streams and rivers, they send out people to actually shadow them to make sure that nobody comes and attacks their wounded or the prisoners. And they're actually shouting out, saying they're so glad that peace has happened and they hope that they can be friends again soon. Now, I think it's important to point out that this may have been what the Tuscarora, at least the majority of them, were wanting the whole time, was not to have a complete war with the English and wipe them off North America, but to just create this mutual respect between them. So a lot of them thought now that they've shown the English that they can fight and they can hurt them, now the English will respect them and they can become trade friends again and just each stay in their own territory and only come when invited. So they make it back to New Bern. So on March 19th, the day the meeting was scheduled, the Tuscarora don't show. The reasoning behind this is most likely that uh, King Hancock gave up all the captives that they had in their town at the fort. And they probably tried to plead with the other surrounding towns to give up their captives and make peace. But since each town is autonomous and each town has its own council, maybe they feel like they're in a pretty strong position and they want a little stronger deal to be made. Also, they've learned throughout this war so far that keeping hostages was a great way to get out of a bind. So most of the towns didn't want to give up their hostages because if they ever were at the point where they were going to be completely wiped out they could just pull out the women and and make them cry and then everybody would back off and leave so nobody wants to give up a trump card like that so barnwell ends up sending out his yamasee warriors and they sat quarry town quarry town had been reoccupied since peace overtures had been made but now that they saw that more warriors were coming they fled to the fort at king hancock's town barnwell then gathered troops and he headed back to king hancock's fort so on march 29th he headed out this time with 15 South Carolina men, 30 Indians, and he camped at Quarrytown. He built a base of operation there, and he called the place Fort Barnwell, because he's cool. Then he called up all of his other men that were stationed down south to come meet with him. And so by April 6th, he had 153 militiamen and 128 Indians, so just short of 300 people. He also brought cannons, just some small ones, and he only had about enough ammo for 10 shots, but he thought, oh, this will do the trick. This will work. If anything, just a scare tactic. Take a toll on the Indians' morale, hold up in a fort if there's some huge cannons going off hitting the walls. Mm -hmm. Meanwhile, it's been several weeks since they've been there, and they show up at the Tuscarora Fort, and they've built a second wall 
all the way around where the moat is and put another ditch in around the fort. And so they've also built a protective wall going down to the water landing so that they have access to get to the canoes and drinking water. So Barnwell is like, darn it all. <laughs> so he and his men begin digging trenches because they're worried about being shot at from the walls, but they're constantly harassed. Meanwhile, he sets up the cannons and begins to fire at them, but they really have almost no effect. The palisades are so thick, like we mentioned with the uh, bundles of sticks used as shields, Caleb. Well, the palisade walls are these bundles of sticks set up as a wall, and pretty much the same thing. They just absorb these small cannonballs and yeah. don't have much effect at all. If you shoot cannonball at the stone wall, it's going to crack and cause basically a stone explosion. But wood, it, it'll make a hole about the size of a cannonball, which is maybe a grapefruit this size of cannon. So it's really not going to do anything. Uh, they try and set fires to the wall, but they've got this great extinguish system set up, and they just dump water over and put the fires out instantly. And then Barnwell realizes that even if he breaches the first ring, it's still the fort beyond that that they tried to attack last time. And so they have a 10-day siege. He ends up losing six people that are picked off, and he has 35 people wounded, and another Indian is killed and wounded. And he's almost out of food. The people are getting famished. And so on April 17th, he calls for another parlay. He's in a tight spot, but he's going to bluff a little bit. And he gives his list of demands. And he says, all right, number one, we want all of the British captives released. Two, we want King Hancock and his lieutenants to be given over to the North Carolina government. You need to give back all of the English property that was stolen. And we want all of the food that's in this fort. We want you to break down the fort walls. And we want our army to march through and do a mini triumph just to show that we conquered it. It was a standard British etiquette that when you've conquered somebody, the army marches through with their flags and gets to declare victory. And the final thing was they were to give up all claims to land south of the Noose and Cape Fear Rivers. Now, these sound like pretty stiff demands, uh, but surprisingly, they agreed to it. Yeah, most of them. They... They were in a tight spot, too. They were held up in this fort, and they didn't have a lot of food. So they thought to themselves, well, this doesn't sound so bad. Giving up this land, this land south of the Noose River, that's not really our land. That's where the Noose Indians and the Bear River Indians live. And yeah, they're our allies, but that doesn't really affect us. And yeah, we got some few trinkets that were stolen. We can give those back, and the English will have peace with us. Um, and they say to themselves, and we would love to give up King Hancock, but he's not here. He went to go hide with King Tom Blount, so we can't give him to you. But everything else we'll do. So they did return the 24 captives, the children, and everybody like that. Uh, but many of Barnwell's men suddenly coming up and they're starting to whisper in his ear that he should betray the Indians as soon as they get in the fort to do their triumph. They would get rich. They could finally get some slaves. Uh, but Barnwell's quoted saying that if we betray them, they'll never trust another white person again. And in a war, you want to be able to have that relationship where even when you're at war, you can put the flag up and talk a truce and have a parlay. Also, Barnwell brought up the point that if they did that and betrayed them, they would be writing the death sentence for every woman child in every other fort that was held up as a hostage and so word goes out there was one person caleb that this did not end well for and that was harry poor harry barnwell finds out that harry has been helping them with this blasted amazing fort 
and he does not take too kindly to it and they have him stand there and they literally hack him to pieces yeah it's basically implied that the second that they got him they killed him and uh i can see why they probably didn't want him going and teaching this fort making skill to every single native american tribe there was around but yeah it's really unfortunate to him because he was really helping out the tuscarora but i'm sure that was a sticking point as well by May 1st, Barnwell and his men are back in New Bern, resting a sigh of relief, and the Tuscarora and the English were at peace for time and memorial, and they all lived happily ever after. At least that's where we'd like to end this story. But there's this strange, cloudy, mysterious, creepy thing that happened. And the weird thing is we know that it happened... But we don't know who did it. Either in May or June, a peace meeting is held in Corytown. But this peace meeting isn't just the chiefs and the clan mothers meeting. They bring the whole village. There could have been up to 500 people at this meeting. And we don't know who did it or why. But they attacked during the peace meeting and they killed over 40 Indians and captured another between 200 and 400 people and marched them out to be sold as slaves to the Caribbean. Right as the war has ended, all of a sudden, we're about to start the second phase of the Tuscarora War. But who did this? There's a lot of theories out there. The North Carolina government blamed Barnwell. And it's really interesting, because we just saw at the Kachnia Fort of King Hancock that he had the opportunity to betray them all, but he didn't, because he said he was a man of his word. But Governor Hyde and Grafenreed repeat that it was Barnwell that did it. But at the same time, there's some letters from Governor Hyde saying that he has over 200 Indian slaves that he needs to offload and sell. We're not sure if it was the North Carolina government. Because remember, they didn't want a peace treaty. They made it very clear to Barnwell there will be no peace treaty. We want complete victory. There's no documentation anywhere that's been found yet. Hopefully someday something will show up in a letter somewhere. Nobody admits to doing it. So the three main theories are Barnwell had a change of heart and was a sneaky, nasty soul and changed his mind and betrayed them and took them as slaves back to South Carolina. Or Governor Hyde and the council members ordered it to recoup some of what they lost and kick back up the war on purpose. Or some other North Carolina men that were just looking for an opportunity to get a bunch of slaves and make some quick money and the consequences be darned. Wouldn't that be quite the conspiracy if the government did it on purpose just to restart the war? I mean, that sounds like something in a horrible movie or a novel or something. Any one of those three options could very well happen. Like we said, there's there's really no information on it other than the fact of that letter of Hyde having slaves to sell. But I don't want to just condemn him right away because all these people were selling Indians of all sorts of nations and things at the time. So it's possible it could have been somebody else. But it is amazing that they blame Barnwell and Barnwell says it wasn't me. So they might have looked at Barnwell as being a scapegoat. Mm -hmm. But that brings us to the end of the first Tuscarora War. And next week we are going to be going into the Second Tuscarora War. They really should be the same war because as soon as they made peace, they broke it and started again. But they are known as the Tuscarora Wars, actually. So we hope that you can join us next time for that. As usual, folks, we would like to thank you and encourage you to check us out on Facebook. Like us there. You can follow us on Twitter at Iroquois History. 
Yes, uh, as mentioned before, we post maps and also resources for each episode that helps you follow along. So please check out our website, longhousepodcast.com. Check our Facebook feed. And most importantly, if you guys don't mind, we would really appreciate it if you could leave us an iTunes review. By leaving a review, that helps us stay bumped in the podcast charts, which uh, makes our podcast easier to find and helps us get this history out there so that everyone can hear it. Thank you, everyone. We'll see you next time. Bye, everybody.